Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Dr. Sundar Nyanavel. I am a consultant, child and adolescent psychiatrist at Sunderland. We are here today to discuss a new article recently published in BJ Psych Advances titled Genetic Investigations Pathway for People with Intellectual Disability, Autism and or Epilepsy. I am very pleased to be joined by the authors of this work, Dr. Elaine Clark, who is a consultant pediatrician in neurodevelopment at Great Ormond Street Hospital, and Dr. Maria Kotsogiani, a pediatrician and clinical fellow in cancer genetics at the Great Ormond Street Hospital. I am also pleased to welcome Dr. Lara Menzies, who is also a consultant with the same team, clinical genetics at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Thank you all so much for joining us today. So, can you talk us through possible measures for improving access to genetic testing services for intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorders? Hi, Sundas. This is Dr. Elaine Clark. So, thinking about improving access, the first part to that is about educating professionals and families about the advances in genomic medicine. And there's websites that are being set up nationally through the Genomics Medicine Service Alliance to keep information accessible and up to date, both for professionals and for families. So for professionals who are meeting new patients with these conditions, testing should be offered if if it's identified in disability, autism or epilepsy. And for patients under follow-up with healthcare professionals, I think it's important that each visit there's a review of what genetic tests have been offered in the past to make sure that the most up-to-date and appropriate testing has been offered. Well, I think we, we should remember, though, that not all individuals with neurodevelopmental conditions will still be under healthcare professionals. So there's a role also thinking about educating social care services, charities and education networks. So for those who are not under healthcare professionals, the way into genetic testing is going to be through the GPs. So GPs also need to be aware of these advances and be aware of the National Genomic Test Directory, which gives clear guidance on which professionals can order these tests so that GPs can make appropriate referrals. That was a comprehensive reply, and I'm sure it will be quite helpful for the audience And what are the genetic tests available for this purpose? And how do you actually go about as a clinician choosing the most appropriate and the most effective genetic test for uh, that set of symptoms or that condition? Um, Hi, it's Maria Kutoyani. So we all know that genomic medicine has advanced rapidly throughout the last decades and provided us with a variety of different genetic tests available most commonly used tests to identify uh, genetic changes for conditions that predispose uh, intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorders is uh, mainly the chromosomal uh, microarray uh, in the form of either RACGH or SNP arrays. And that is used as a baseline test with or without uh, fragile X testing through PCR. And that's only if the clinical phenotype features of the patient suggest so. As it is a stepwise approach, further testing, depending on the initial results, can be in the form of next-generation sequencing 
and or specific gene panel testing. A DNA sample can always be used for storage, and that's on the initial blood sampling of the patient. And if needed, further analysis, then it can be taken as informed consent from the patient. Answering the second part of the question, the key in deciding the most effective genetic test still lies in the careful clinical phenotyping of each patient, and that includes a detailed clinical examination, birth, developmental, family history, and other investigations that the clinician may have requested, and also the diagnostic yield of the testing method and the type of syndrome or disorder suspected, whether it could be, for example, mitochondrial or imprinting disorder, then we we can choose different genetic tests. There is also a nice flowchart guidance stated in our article that the readers can refer to. Thanks for that, uh, Maria. Yes, I, uh, the algorithm or the flowchart provided in the articles, that would be a good reference, I believe, for the clinicians in deciding what are the genetic tests and what would be the most appropriate or the effective test that they could order. Moving on, so are there any practical tips for improving the diagnostic yield that is appropriately selecting cases or reference for genetic testing? Because we are quite mindful that we have finite resources that need to be appropriately requested and ordered. So any thoughts about that? Thanks, Amber. It's Lara here. I think that's a, a really good question. And I think there's probably several components to, to consider. So I guess when we're thinking about first-line genetic testing, it's important that we are making sure that we're not missing patients who may be appropriate for, for example, microarray and fragile X. And I think many patients coming through now in childhood are, are having these tests, but I think there is a cohort of patients who are older, who in adulthood, who may not have had testing at the, the point of diagnosis. So I think it's, it's being aware of these tests and, and thinking about it and requesting that, that test. The other thing that's really, really important in terms of deciding whether or not genetic alterations that we see, whether they are are significant, is is what Maria was saying before. It's so important to put down all of the the phenotyping information that you have, because as the the clinician requesting the patient, you know the patient the best. And that information can be really helpful in getting towards a diagnosis. So we can't do very much from the genetic side without information about phenotype. So I guess if we're thinking sort of more specific examples, when we're thinking about patients with epilepsy, it's important to know the age of onset, whether there are neuroimaging findings in association with the seizures, what type of seizures, whether there's any family history. So those things are really, really important to, to, to provide when we're requesting the test. And when we're thinking about intellectual disability and autism, important features to, to note would be whether the patient is dysmorphic, whether they have other congenital structural abnormalities, whether whether there is consanguinity in the family, whether there are other members of the family, so siblings who are affected, whether there is either micro or macrocephaly, whether there are neurocutaneous abnormalities. So lots of extra things there that can really help us to, to finish the diagnosis, because often when we get a result, you know, we find many variants in patients when we test them, and that's often just part of normal variation. And in order to know if something is significant, we need to cross-check with the phenotype. So the information from, from clinicians out there requesting the test is really, really important. Um, and I think the second aspect to, to mention is that when we're moving on to more detailed 
genes such as cells so looking at that whole genome and whole exome sequencing, the best way to get a, a higher diagnostic yield is to do trio testing. So ideally comparing the program the patient themselves with their parents. Having said that, it's not a it's not prohibitive to do that sort of testing if a patient is in a situation where we don't have access to samples from, from other family members. So yes, doing the test as a trio is by far the best way of doing it because the having the extra samples to compare and inform the filtering process is, is really helpful. But I think we should also be mindful that there are patients out there whose family members are no longer with us or maybe adopted, looked after children, or you know, all sorts of reasons why we can't necessarily get a trio and we can still do the whole genome sequencing on those patients. So those are the, the key things I think in answer to your question. And I, you know, diagnostic yield will increase over time, I'm sure, as our knowledge of our genes increases. Well, thanks for that, uh, Lara. I think that, that that's really quite useful advice to the clinicians in making appropriate referrals and also uh, making good quality uh, referrals to improve the diagnostic yield. That was uh, very succinctly summarized. Thanks for that. Uh, moving on, any practical ideas, including your uh, experience in developing interdisciplinary networks and genetic pathways uh, involving pediatricians, uh, psychiatrists and uh, clinical geneticists, because I, I believe it's uh, many of the clinicians find it really quite challenging to develop and nurture those networks and put it to use to improve patient outcomes. Any thoughts about that, please? So this is something, this is Elaine again, this is something I've been working on. So I'm a pediatrician in neurodisability, but I began working with the clinical genetics team as well to think about the relevance of the new um, advances in genomic testing and was able to learn from them how this might apply to this particular group. Now, we've been really fortunate with these advances in technology, which has really enabled us to bring people together from different places in sort of a quick way and then um, large groups of people together. So most professional groups do hold regular local or regional meetings and these can be used as an initial platform for education and networking. Uh, so with the community pediatric group, I was lucky that I knew those networks and was able to start the education. But what I was looking for as well is for interested professionals within each group, within each local group, to meet a little bit more regularly. So I think you can't expect everybody to know everything about genetics, but is there someone within each team that's quite interested that will want to meet a little bit more regularly and keep themselves updated so that they can pass on the knowledge to their team? So I set up a group for community pediatricians, a genetic interest group, where we meet uh, once a month or once every couple of months to think about strategy and to share cases for learning. On a wider group, wider networks, thinking beyond just community pediatrics, we have set up remote drop-in sessions in the North London hub. So those sessions are once a month and they're attended by clinical geneticists and by the clinical scientists. And this enables clinicians just to drop in once a month when they want to, to ask questions either about the process or about cases, um, or just to listen to others to gain experience about what's going on. When you're looking at feeding back results, again, there needs to be a good network to think about how, what do you do with those results when you get them, how to make sense of those. So there are, again, networks set up that professionals can link in what we call a multidisciplinary team network. 
with the geneticists and clinical scientists um, to actually look at those results. So Lara's had more experience of that directly. So I'll just pass you to Lara to talk you through about what that means. Thanks, Elaine. So yeah, absolutely. I think one of the really important things as I mentioned before, when we are trying to, to get a genetic diagnosis is that sort of interplay between understanding about the phenotype and understanding about the genotypes of the genetic results. And increasingly, we are working much more within an MDT setting because of that. And as I mentioned before, it's it's the, the clinician who knows the patient best, who's most valuable really in terms of describing the phenotype and, and helping our clinical scientists to look at the variants. So if if you're involved in a case and you're invited to attend the genetics MDT, please, please do try your best to come because that I think is a, a really, really helpful thing for us. And also because we discussed the, the variants and how we decide whether or not they are um, relevant medically or not. It's also quite a useful sort of educational experience as well. And I think we need to, to work together to, to move forward because as we're doing genetic testing for so many more individuals, um, from a capacity perspective, it, it needs to be something that we are all involved in. So the the MDTs are, are happening and, and are happening more often, I think. So that's something that we'll continue to develop and show up and hope to see some of that. Thanks, Elaine and uh, Lara, for sharing that uh, valuable experience. Uh, I'm sure it's going to enthuse qu quite a few among the audience who are listening to this podcast because this is something that uh, many of the clinicians really find challenging. They are all really valuable tips. Thanks for that. Any take-home messages, finally, regarding communication and consent pertaining to genetic testing for neurodevelopmental disorders? Uh, this is a common thing that many clinicians uh, think about, the ethical issues with regards to these. Any thoughts about those? Yeah, so I can see it can be quite daunting when you're looking at doing sort of detailed genetic consent and something you might not be as familiar with. But first of all, I would say to look at your local Genomics Laboratory Hub website. So some really good teaching information there for professionals and for parents. There's excellent parent information leaflets. Some are written in easy forms. Uh, some, some are done in animated form videos that you can look at, which are good for young people or people with um, limited mental capacity as well to access. The record of discussion form, which is the consent form, so the more legal document, it's set out in such a way that it actually covers all the points you need to talk about in consent. So you don't need to kind of remember it. It's there on the record of discussion. You can go through that with the family. If there is consent training locally, you might want to attend that. You want to think within your team, where are you going to keep that information? Where have you got your easily accessible information for parents and your forms ready for clinic? But also think about your workforce. This isn't just the role of a clinician. Is there anyone else in your team who can actually help with the, sort of the time and resources that this takes? So we've been looking in the North London Hub around the roles of clinical nurse specialists or genomic practitioners who can actually take on some of this role. And just to, for reassurance that you, know, you have all these networks there, you have the Genomics Laboratory Hub, and that there's advice and guidance available if you're just really not sure, just go to your drop-in session or email the team and they'll be able to guide you. Thanks for uh, this advice, uh, Elaine. I, I think the clinicians will really find this quite helpful. Any final thoughts, any final take-home messages regarding this? 
Um, I just think it's just important that this isn't just going to be intellectual disability and neurodevelopment disorders. The whole um, advances in genomics is so broad across all elements of medicine. So I think some people think it's kind of a, maybe a new idea sort of a way in the future, but I think it's here and we're learning so much that's going to be helpful in personalised medicine going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it might seem daunting now, but it, it is going to become something that we're all using increasingly. So at the moment, we're thinking predominantly about genetic testing in the context of rare diseases. So it is a bit more niche, I guess. But, you know, increasingly, there will be genetic testing for more common conditions as well. So it's um, sort of a, a flow of information that's that's coming, really. So And I think once you've done these things once or twice, it becomes much more familiar as Elaine was saying before it you know it's a process of completing the forms and things in terms of consent but once you've done it once or twice and become familiar with it um and the resources that are available I think it's it's less difficult the challenge I think is just the time that it takes and we, we know that it is time consuming um but ways of trying to sort of increase the efficiency the, the strategies and things that Elaine mentioned I think are really helpful and if we can get a diagnosis for patients, that is so helpful, partially in terms of information, but also increasingly for treatments as well. So it's it's sort of a, a positive side of the running. Thank you all so much for joining us. That was Dr. Elaine Clark, Dr. Maria Holsogiani, and Dr. Lara Menzies. They have been discussing their new article titled Genetic Investigations Pathway for People with Intellectual Disability, Autism and or epilepsy, which is published in BJ Psych Advances. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. And for the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. And to listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.